Okay. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Carousel Podcast. I have a very special guest today, Brett Craig, who probably is like the closest person to the reason for being of the podcast of the Carousel and the blog that I could possibly think of. I've been like chasing after Brett for a long time, trying to like get in touch with him because I just think his story is so telling and what he's doing now is so cool. Um, so I'll let him tell you his story, but I'm I'm super happy that he's here and that he agreed to do this. Before we get going, his Substack is brettcraig.substack.com. His podcast is AdWoke, which is kind of similar to the carousel. He's kind of blowing up the ad world and revealing its secrets. And I think it's just so great to, to hear it from truly the horse's mouth, because really you were a insider of insiders in the marketing world, in the advertising world. You were the biggest shot you could possibly be at a big agency. So a true insider. And then more or less got canceled and then rose uh, from from the flames like a phoenix. So uh, I'll let you tell your story, uh, maybe just from the beginning. Like, how did you get into ads and what happened? Yeah, I mean, I grew up, uh, my dad gave me the first camcorder, I think that was ever created or something like that. Maybe the second or third one that was ever created when I was a kid. And I don't think he knew what he gave me. He gave me this camera that I instantly decided to start making videos and films and sketches with my friends. And, you know, when you look back on your life, you're like, I don't, I didn't know that was going to lead to anything, but I was instantly directing little commercials, making little movies. Um, they're all highly embarrassing, um, but my sister liked them uh, and her friends. Uh, and looking back, I was, it set me on a path to want to create. I don't know why I enjoyed entertaining people. Uh, I liked drawing. I liked brands. I liked logos. And you know, finally, I figured out in junior college that I was going to be a teacher, that I can't teach something that I don't know, I can't learn, which is math. Like I'd sit in math class and I'd be like, I don't know what they're talking about, yet I'm on a path to teach people math. This is not going to work. And I kept being told by teachers at the time, they kept telling me like, you're really creative, you should go into advertising. And I didn't know really what that meant or what that would look like, but I kept hearing that. Then I went to college and decided to pursue that. And again, a professor was like, here's what these creative guys do. You know, they come to work with their dogs and in sandals and Hawaiian shirts. This is way back in 95. And I thought, man, that sounds fun. And he also said, some of them, you know, make a million dollars a year. And I'm like, hmm, you know, because teaching has a limit on what you can make. And I was like, I'm not totally money focused, but the upside of that appealed to me. Like, wow, I get to be creative and they might pay really well to do that. So that's kind of like, a quick background of how I kind of grew up and why I got interested in advertising. It was really, I guess I give credit to the teachers that sort of solid in me and pushed me to do it. Okay. So then, so which, what grade level teachers was, were these college professors you're talking about? Or? Yeah. I had a 10th grade English professor who didn't know what to do with me in class, who literally found me to be completely disruptive, which I think is another sign of creative people. they yeah. tend to be disruptive. You know, I, rebellious. I, I was a troublemaker. I was a class clown uh, as a kid. I used to flick, you know, little pieces of paper into my teacher's hair. It would land in his hair, but I would do it below the desk so he couldn't see it. But this teacher had so much trouble with me. And then I think at one point realized, oh, you know, when you get an English assignment, you go and you make a, a video, you make music videos, you, you make movies, you ought to be in advertising. I don't even know if she knew what exactly that looked like, but she was like, 
this kid who's driving me crazy might actually have a talent for something. So that was the first time. Then I had some teachers in junior college tell me you're a really good writer, which I'd never heard that before because I'd never been told I was a writer. I'd never had any reason to believe I was a writer until I actually did some writing and some teachers that I, I really look back and I appreciate that they, you know, would tell me that you ought to, you ought to go down that road. And I found you could be a writer for brands. And like I said, that final college professor is like, not only can you be a writer for brands, but you can wear your hair however you want. I get my hair, maybe that's good. because I like <laughs> What you call that. And you can bring your dog to work and you can wear those sandals and you can wear shorts. And I'm like, I'm casual. I don't like formality very much. And I think, you know, looking back, those teachers, I mean, it was an amazing sort of bit of providence that like it was exactly the career that I would love. And exactly. Awesome. I, I didn't. And I never really had to try in advertising in one sense is that I loved it. And I don't know if that's how you are, too, but like I so love the game of creativity and advertising that you didn't have to ask me to stay late um, or work the weekend I wanted to. Yeah. Whereas I was a good basketball player, but when I'd get done with basketball practice, I'd notice all the guys on the team want to keep playing. And I'd be like, I want to get out of here. You'd be like, and, screw this. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. And then I realized, Oh, that's why Michael Jordan is who Michael Jordan is. It's like he's six, six and he's got the perfect basketball, you know, uh, body, but he also has the mind to go with it. And, you know, I don't have the mind out here, but in advertising, interestingly, I would look at people that I think maybe had more talent than me, but I don't think they loved it like I did. Yeah, right, so right, right. It is a combination. You know, you have to have some talent and some it's a lot of passion. And I think that those two things met in advertising for me. Totally. No, I, I did, I think, fall in love with it for sure. You know, I, I love the, yeah, the late night hammering brainstorming trying to nail that concept trying to nail the big idea i think i fell in love with that to a degree and i think it's also funny because um and this leads into the next question it's unlike basketball or many of these other professions where there's sort of a clear path to it finding that love for the creative collaborative process yeah. in the advertising context perhaps not in like the filmmaking context or like acting, which everybody wants to do that, right? Sure. But figuring out how to do that in the, like being a copywriter is really a, it, a, a skill of its own. It's kind of like this collaborative creative thing that is not really, it's not really like anything else. So how did you find it? Like, so you knew you, the teacher said, hey, you should get into it. How did you then go about getting into it? Well, then you get, you know, you're in college and they have no clue what it really is copywriter is a weird word yeah right. like nobody gets it. yeah right yeah <laughs> you do trademarks a lawyer you know like yeah. yeah um you don't know that it works it's a partnership my college professor kind of knew those things but he didn't work in big time national advertising so he could only guide me so much so i'm from la i go to school at university of idaho not the place you'd go to become an ad guy in national advertising i come back to la and Suddenly, I find myself trying to get into a business that I don't really understand. I don't really get that you need to have a book. I'm thinking, I got a degree from University of Idaho. Nobody cares. And then I'm sending letters to every agency that I could think of in the Los Angeles area. Not one person responded. Until finally, I found out there was a guy that worked at Burger King that went to University of Idaho. I gave him a call, uh, and he actually called me back and said, well, you could be an assistant to a CCO, chief creative officer which is essentially a secretary. 
and which is not my gift. I am not organized and I lost his plane tickets and I, I don't know how that guy put up with me. But in any case, the guy gave me a shot to be a secretary. And I'm like, man, this is, this is crazy reality of college is that you think you're going to come out and go into the thing that you want to be only to discover that you're not ready for the thing that you want to be. And in fact, you're first going to do secretarial work, um, mailroom work. You're going to do the most menial things just to get a chance to be near the job that you want to be, that you want to do. So it was there then that I realized, oh, you got to go to the bookshop. You know, you got to, you got to take a whole nother path and you got to do this thing that you don't even want to do um, in order to just be around creatives that can show you what this thing is called copywriting. If that it's, makes so sense. You went to bookshop? Yeah. Mike Whitlow. I uh, went he, to bookshop. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. So yeah. yeah, yeah dude, Mike I, Whitlow. I, yeah. Yeah. Mike Whitlow is so, I mean, he just passed away. I know. And, very sad. So very sad. sad. Yeah, I know. He, he looks so young when I look at photos of him and he was an awesome teacher and, um, but going to his class, I mean, just even there is when I started to really understand what a copywriter does, what what concept is. I'm sure he did that for you too. And Mike, I always thought he's probably the most underrated creative director there ever was because I'm like, he was such a good creative director. He was so good at seeing your style and not putting his thumbprint on it. He would challenge you. He would always give you a rationale for why he didn't like something. And so Mike was like the best teacher you could have. and for me, coming from where I came from, which was kind of a blue collar family, nobody had a degree in my family till me and my sister. You know, Mike was kind of the blue collar, I guess, ad school. You know, like think about Art Center. I think about these other schools. These kids are paying 30, 40,000 after they went to college and we're paying what? I was 600 paying bucks a class is what it is now, you know? So it's, yeah, you get out of there with, I mean, it's very make what you, you you're not going to, nobody's going to help you. You got to like do it yourself in bookshop, yeah. but uh, you know, you get out of there three grand, four grand, and you know, right. maybe you have a book. Uh, well, so, yeah. Mike and Kim accelerated me into the advanced class because I had been on this ad team and I knew someone in the class who was doing very well. And he gave kind of gave a good word for me. So I got put right into the advanced class. And so I got through it in a year. And oh, I got, I got Mike Whitlow a lot. Yeah. So it's kind of an advantage to be able to present to him. And then on the side, I was over at DMBNB, which doesn't exist anymore. Darcy, I think it was Massius Benton Bowles, DMBNB. It did all the Bud Frog stuff. They're long gone. But I was getting to be around all those creatives. And while I was doing my book at Bookshop, I was showing them ideas and getting sort of their opinions along with Mike Whitlow. So in a weird way, I got kind of a master class in being a, a creative. I got an advantage of being the secretary to the CCO, but right next to all these creative guys and women and, and that basically took me under their wing and kind of gave me um, a crash course in concept, you know, and we're, you know, and Mike Whitlow is like this too, like, and so were they and back in the day is very different, you know, unafraid to criticize the work, you know, and you had to pay your dues, you know, it was a little bit of okay, like, to be the low man on the totem pole um, and have it to earn your keep and kind of just, first of all, we just want to know if you're cool. You know, first of all, we just want to know if we could take you to lunch and you're not annoying. Um, yeah. And so I got to do that with those guys and and really I got a crash course and, and that helped me get my book done in like a year. And the next thing you know, I was at a little agency called M1 in Santa Monica. And then from Santa Monica, that's where, you, you know, you're writing copy and you're answering the phone. That's how little it was. Uh, 
and a couple other little jobs where I ran the mailroom in one play at Ogilvy and Mather, um, bouncing around until I got to M1 in Santa Monica. And then from there, I got to get to my dream agency, which was Shia Day, and get to work with Lee Clow, who I'd read about in college, you know. Right. So Lee Clow is a, was a legend. I, the thing I want, I want to actually say two things. One thing is that the thing that's important to remember at this time is this was all before Mad Men, right? Well, before Mad Men or, yeah. or sort of post Mad Men? Was this post? No, no. I mean like the show Mad Men. Oh, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So this yeah, was post Mad Men era, but pre Mad Men show. Right, right. So I think like for a guy like me, Mad Men was really a big reason why I, the show wanted to go into copywriting because, you know, I had no, again, I had no idea what this world even was. I had a vague idea that I, you know, I liked ads. I liked thinking about brands a lot, um, but I didn't really know it. But you kind of instinctually knew you wanted to do this before the Mad Men era. There was no Don Draper. So who were the guys you wanted to be like at that? Was Lee Clow one of them? Or, and who Lee was Clow? Lee? Yeah, Lee Clow sparked something in me very early. I don't know what it was like looking at him and he looked like Gandalf. Um, reading about him in the textbook, even his names, Lee Clow. I don't know what it is about that name. It's a weird name, I guess. You know what I mean? And then seeing him and um, and then seeing Apple and admiring that company and hearing about Jay Shiat, you know, all these different uh, names at the time. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. I'm reading about them in marketing textbooks and and all that Shiat Day crew from the 80s, they all went on to start agencies in New York and, you know, Dick Sittig, Jack in a Box. They were like, um, they're like a, I don't know. They were like the Hell's Angels. <laughs> I don't know. Like like this gang inside of advertising. I don't know how to, whether that's pay, the PayPal right. mafia, like the PayPal mafia. Yeah. And they were just so purist to me. Yeah. yeah like okay. they were these ad guys that, and women that actually believed advertising could be artful. And Lee would, would call on you to make something that would actually make the world more interesting or beautiful or funny. And he did that over and over and over again for Apple. And he, he never really did it in a very um, sort of logical uh, argument to the consumer which is, I, I think would be more the madman area. It's the cigarette that makes you feel light on your feet or whatever, like the very logical pitch. Lee very much was all about the art, wrapping it in art could make it far more powerful than any sort of rational message. And, you know, I'm a writer, so rationality in writing, I think writers get to connect ideas. I would always be amazed at how Lee would subtract from what we were doing, um, knock things off, the thing that you don't need because the emotional appeal of it was going to say the same thing you would have wrote in 20 words. I can convey that in an image. And he did it over and over again. And being around that, I started to feel like, well, advertising, when it's at its best, like when Lee does his best stuff, when these guys do their best stuff, it's every bit as compelling as what Hollywood does. Um, that's fun. Like, I can't believe there's a job that companies will pay millions of dollars for you to go off and fly and shoot a spot in Australia to tell a story that'll put goosebumps on somebody's arms to sell deodorant or make somebody laugh or to sell Pepsi or whatever. That just seemed too good to be true to me. And that at times when it's really done well, like when Nike's really nailed it, like Wyden and Kennedy in the past, it elevates itself up to the level of art 
up to level as anything as good as you've seen from from Hollywood. Occasionally it gets there. And that was so exciting to be a part of an agency that believed those things. Totally. It can transcend culture to be the very pinnacle and the very definition of culture. That's right. Just do it is as big as any movie ever, if not bigger, because every single person knows it. And it really means something really special to people. I I totally agree. Um, And I felt the same way that it is almost unbelievable when you find it. You're like, this is like being a starving, cool artist, except you're not poor. (laughs) (laughs) Why doesn't everyone do this? Right. Yeah. Okay. So then you got really good at it, though, because you rose, unlike me, you rose (laughs) to to the top of it. So so how did you, what differentiated you to, to be able to move up and then where did you end up? And then we can get into the, you know, the, the fall. I think I loved it as much or more than anyone or I met. So I ge- just genuinely loved it. And I think I also discovered that um, creatives that were willing to collaborate, this is a collaborative business. You're going to have to work with directors, people on sets, crews, account people, strategists, um, account people, um, clients, <laughs> even more so. And I very much um, was able to, I didn't have a big ego. If anything, I always believed I wasn't the best. I always looked over and said, that person's better. Uh, in fact, one time during a big pitch for Citibank, I c- it came up with this idea and then Lee wanted me to write the manifesto. Uh, and I actually wanted a, a, this girl that I was working with that I actually had a crush on at the time, uh, this woman to, to write the manifesto because I thought she was a better ri- writer than I. And I'll never forget, Lee walks up to my office. He goes, this is Lee. He goes, why Why aren't you Why aren't you writing the manifesto? And he, he'd blink a lot. That's how he is. Because <laughs> I see Maya's writing the manifesto, but it's your idea. And I'm like, because Maya's a really good writer and I think she would write it really good. He's like, no. You know, he Lee would get really curt sometimes. He's like, he's like, it's your idea. You write it. And it, he had such a great way of man, uh, motivating you. He said, um, you're you're too good of a writer to let someone else write your idea. And then he's like, you write it. And I was like, and that was exactly what I needed to hear. I mean, Lee Cloud, he walked out of the room. I'm like, he just said I'm a good writer. Oh my gosh. This is like, I was reading about this guy in textbooks two years ago. And I walked out and I remember I got up at five in the morning on 4th of July. There was a bunch of parties breaking out in Hermosa Beach and Manhattan Beach. And I wanted to be at those things. But instead I'm like, I'm going to pour a cup of coffee. And I'm going to try to write this thing that Lee said I need to write. And I write it. And of course, Lee loved it. And he crossed out one line. That's how Lee is. He goes, just make this ending sharper. Um, but so, yeah, so I loved it. And I was never thought much of my own ability enough so that, and I probably still have that imposter syndrome. I think we all have it as creatives. You hear all creatives talk about it. Because I didn't overesteem my ability, I think it made me try harder. <laughs> um you know what I mean? And I also could could handle when when I didn't get, you know, when someone didn't want my idea, I didn't I didn't take I was willing to um, to accept that feedback, criticisms of my idea. I, I was willing to take that maybe quicker and not take it personally. I learned to separate my ideas from the criticism. Uh and I always believed that other people could make my idea better. I don't think I knew all these things. I don't think I could articulate that to you at the time, but that was my disposition. And I think it served me well. 
because you in my era and it's very different from now this, everything's empathy now everything's like, i feel oh i wouldn't want to criticize you that everybody's like a highly liberal progressive parent in advertising and the last thing i want to do is insult junior on his idea then lee would look at your stuff he'd come in your office start tearing things off the wall and i remember one time saying you're making me feel bad you know just tearing off the wall like he goes he looked at me we don't care about your feelings <laughs> right that, that was liberating yeah, I wasn't offended by that. I was liberated by that. Lee is not interested in in tan, you know tickling my ego. He's not interested in pumping me up. He's not interested in tearing me down. He is looking for the best idea. He's looking for the best, which is yeah. And he's coming into the room and he's tearing down the ones that don't work, and he's keeping the ones that do, and he's making my work better. And I saw that that's the 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 magic of the business. Can you have an account person that annoys you walk in the room? They're annoying, but they made a point that you have to go, hmm, I've heard that twice now. Heard it from the strategist and I heard it from the account person. Uh, I heard it from my partner, my art director partner. So I think what I was good at and what actually really works well as a creative director, but I didn't know any of this, was that you're listening, listening to the client, listening to account. You know, you got to have one deaf ear when the dumb ideas come out because they're always going to be there. But I, I always assumed that even the, the junior person in the room might say something that could make it better. And so I'm always looking in the room at who's got a thought that I think is worth holding on to. Where am I hearing a repeat, a repeat observation? And I don't think I realized I did that naturally. Uh, I was a naturally collaborative person. But when you get up higher, you know this, you start having to deal with tough clients. You have to deal with tough creatives. You have to deal with tough account people, tough, big egos in advertising. And if you're going to get really egotistical about your ideas, you're going to have a miserable. Oh time. yeah, no, you 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 can't survive even. I mean, you couldn't survive. It sounds like even in your time, in your when you were coming up with that ego, and now it's even. You can't have any ego at all now. I mean, now you have to be completely valuable in every way. Um, so just out of pure curiosity, because I, I we've talked a lot about the collaborative nature of advertising. And it is what the beauty of it is that it's so collaborative and it feels good to create this. That's why it is like when it's when it's good, advertising is the absolute best industry possible because yeah. it is collaborative, it's creative, it's money, it's like all the things that you want, right? When it's good. And we're going to get to the bad side in a second. But outside of the collaborative nature, what do you look for now? Like for people listening to this, what do you look for as good? Like when you're looking at somebody's portfolio which just for listeners out there who aren't familiar, you have to, to be a copywriter or an art director in our industry, you have to have a website that basically has sample pieces of work on it. So when you're evaluating a portfolio, even to this day, what do you look for besides the collaborative element as good? Like what's good writing? It's so hard because it's art at the end of the day. And why do you like a painting? But obviously it's not totally art. It has to communicate something somewhat logical and rational to consumer. So I guess I'm looking for somebody who has a very uh, high level of artist artistry, whether that's funny, whether that's beautiful art direction and can package up that rational message that sell uh, to the consumer in a way that's so artistic and so beautiful that they don't feel they're being sold to. Um, I'm so seduced by that beautiful logo and so seduced by that commercial's emotion that the sell part, I don't even feel it. And all the best advertising does that. 
uh, it was funny. I, I talked to uh, Rich Silverstein at Goodby Silverstein uh, one time when I was up there and he sold to me, he said that we're the art of the compromise you never see. I thought that was a really mm. beautiful thing is that you're making compromises all the time. That's a fact. The question is, do people perceive the comp compromise? And I'm like, that's a really good point. You're right, because it's not that hard to come up with that. It is hard. It's hard to come up with the idea. The harder thing that we have to do as creatives is steer it to completion without destroying it. Without destroying it. Totally. It, I say that it. all the time. The director yeah. will destroy it. Everyone will destroy it with their agenda. The director's trying to shoot a pretty film so he can get a job from Steven Spielberg. It's DreamWorks. But you're trying to sell some antiperspirant yeah. or a, a beer <laughs> or a Pepsi. And so there's all these agendas. How can you steer it without destroying it? So, yeah, I think I'm looking for that person who can art, artfully deliver um, the sell. Because yeah. the sell can be as bad as Mike Lindell selling my pillow. And I'm not against Mike Lindell. I think <laughs> things about Mike Lindell that I think are quite charming. But right. in terms of advertising, it's that sort of that sort of um lower rung on the level, which is I just say my pillow's soft and it's not interesting, it's not artistry. We see those kinds of ads all the time. And that's the low rung on the ladder. And when it gets really good, it goes from the pillow's really soft to something so beautiful that even if someone, nobody has to force you to finish watching the ad or read the tweet, it, you're compelled to, because yeah. it's just such an interesting piece of content. I want to stay for the end. I don't care if I'm being sold. Yeah, right. So. No, I, I love it. I love it. Um, okay, so I, I could talk, I could merit in on this all day, but I want to get to the actual story. So, so okay, so you, you um, we left off, you're at Shia Day. So what happens from there? So Shia, I just topped out. I got to the point where I was running Pepsi. I did Call of Duty. I loved it. We lost Call of Duty, unfortunately. Uh, kind of some cronyism where someone went and took a job at Call of Duty that then hired the agency they wanted. And that happens in advertising. So we lost it. We did that first There's a Soldier in All of Us ad with Kobe Bryant. And and so that, but then oh, I, I lost remember that. that. I remember yeah, that. I was, that was and they good. kept doing it for seven more yeah. years. They just yeah. did it worse every year, in my opinion. <laughs> um, it wasn't as artful, it was much more broad. But in any case, yeah. And then and then I realized that, you know, and this happens in all of our careers where you realize that your conception of what you would like to be, like my hero was Lee Clow. I, I don't compare to Lee Clow. The guy's a once-in-a-lifetime talent. Um, but I, I wanted to eventually lead an agency. And I didn't really necessarily want to start my own agency. I wanted, I wanted to lead an agency like a Shiat Day, and I wanted it to. I wanted to carry forward what he and Jay believed, which is that advertising could be the best art in culture. And and I and I. So when I topped out there and discovered that they weren't going to let me be CCO, and other people were going to get in, this happens, right? And it's it's just the way it goes. Lee was kind of backing off at that point. His hand wasn't as firm on the agency. And decisions were being made by other people. And I felt like I was topping out. I'm looking over at Deutsch down the street and I'm noticing around 2012 that they're starting to do ads that I would say are matching all the criteria we just talked about. They're artful. They do a spot called Michael for PlayStation that go back and look at it. It's a very good spot for PlayStation. Um, they start to do work that I'm like, somebody over there is getting artful because Deutsch before that to me was sort of like the kid brother of Shiate, very successful. You, I'm not suggesting they're very, and I, I admire all the guys and, and uh, the women and men that started that uh, agency, but it was not, in my opinion, of the caliber of Shiat. 
day. Well, we just call it Shia Day. I mean, every day. yeah, everybody would agree that with that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like pretty it much was. like Shia is on a list. It's basically Shia and Wyden are in their own sphere, and then there's everybody else, more or less, right? Right. And so then yeah. when I start to see a heartbeat over at Deutsch, I start to see these artful things starting to happen. I look at some of the people they hired. I'm like, something's changing at Deutsch. And something at Shia Day at the time was becoming more negative because I always, when I look at it like this is like um, in a pride of lions, if the giant uh, leader male lion steps away from the pride, you got a lot of strong females and a lot of strong male lions they are going to fight because they're trying to figure out who's, who's in charge now. Least was stepping away. And that's what was happening at Shia Day was beginning to be infighting who's going to be the next heir apparent. And I just didn't like that environment anymore. It happens. It happens in every company, it happens in any hierarchy. Um, and I'm seeing this heartbeat over at Deutsch. And so I made the grand move from Pepsi. And this, I think it's so funny, one block away to Deutsch and Dr. Pepper. So from soda to soda, because I'm not a big, I'm not, I will admit, I'm not hugely, huge aficionado of change. Went over to Deutsch and went to Dr. Pepper and which would be considered this big step down from the glamour of Pepsi in New York. <laughs> You know, Pepsi is like a cultural yeah. brand, right. maybe not in its high, maybe not in its zenith at 2007, 2008, when we did the Pepsi refresh project, but it's a cool brand. It's in New York. It's in the cool place to Plano, Texas, Dr. Pepper, very conservative brand. Um, and it was the best decision I ever made. And in the end, did way better work for Dr. Pepper than I ever did at Pepsi, who was positioned to do great work, but strangely didn't. And Dr. Pepper, who there was no reason to believe they would do great work because other than I'm a pepper, she's a pepper and a couple of other campaigns like I'm trying to think there was one other one. There just wasn't a lot of great work for Dr. Pepper. And then I got to go there and all of a sudden I got to make Little Sweet, you know, Fansville, um, Larry Cole Pepper, all these interesting campaigns that took did what I most wanted to do in advertising even more than win awards was catch get in the public psyche. To where somebody walks up to you and says, did you do that Larry Culpepper thing? He was like a very annoying character to some people, but some people loved him. Little Sweet, he went bonkers. Like people loved him. They made dolls. And that was the, the height of, to me, if you can penetrate culture and advertising, that is super satisfying. When your mom says, "Good, I saw that ad with that little man. Yeah. <laughs> you know you've done something cool. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I got well, to do that at, at Deutsch. Yeah, because you've you've personified a cultural insight. You know, you've hit on something that is so true that nobody's quite understood how to talk about and how to unpack. And sure. you've done that through the lens of advertising. It's like a great SNL character that changes culture and everybody can always refer, you know, that thing. Yeah. Um, and that's when it really is its best. So um, okay, cool. So then, um, all right. So so then at this point, you were probably doing pretty well, like financially. <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, yeah. solidly. And as you know, and as we all know, as you do better financially, you raise your standard of living. You'll discover that. Everybody watching that will discover that, oh, I'm buying more things and I'm doing more things. And so often it doesn't feel like anything's changing. But yes, answer, short answers, yes. Uh, went from... Shia Day got a, a raise and a new opportunity and felt that maybe the history of Shia Day and bringing some of that legacy into Deutsch would be helpful. And of course, as soon as I got to Deutsch, I, I encounter a cultural reality. 
uh, which is there's a very different heartbeat inside of Deutsch and soul to Deutsch than there is to Shayate. There, you know, where Shayate is creative led, and I'm just used to that. It's Lee. It's the creative say. The creative say this. We're not doing that meeting. We're not ready. That brief isn't good enough. That's how Shayate is. TBWA Shayate to account person says this. Uh, the account person yeah. says this. Right. Yeah, uh, this account person doesn't like that, and I'm like. I'm, I'm not, I am not used to this. And so immediately that was a little bit of a, a, a tension, but I think in a good way, because it was helpful for them to get a little more pushback. I'm very collaborative, but I'm also, you know, I know that an ad agency to be great has to be creative led. There is no way the account team leads you to the promised land. You have to have creative people at the top, just like all the best companies in the world, they're creatively led. Richard Branson's not a, a, a formal, he's not primarily a suit, he's primarily a creative. Lee Clow is not primarily a suit, he's he's smart with business, but he's really a creative. Tesla, Elon Musk is not yeah. primarily a businessman, he is one, but honestly, he probably needs lots of good business people around him, <laughs> but he is as a creative visionary. All and right. if you don't have that at the top, you have no soul to your company and you end up just becoming a widget maker. You know, and you stop making those super innovative things like Apple jobs leaves, the creative soul leaves and Apple becomes an awesome ecosystem that jobs built that just gets minorly perfected year after year versus leaps forward in the same year. Like yeah. yeah, yeah, constant so, leaps forward. Right. And yeah. We needed that at Deutsch and and uh, and some of it was already happening. And then I felt like I got to go there and some other people came in and they were all pushing in that direction. And so it led to a great eight years. I had probably the best eight years of my career at Deutsch. Awesome. So at this point, you've like entered the 1%. So what what was that like? I mean, what was becoming like really, right? Because I mean, at the top of our industry, this is something that I think, again, a lot of people don't understand. When you make it to the top of our industry, you really are doing, you're doing quite well. So was that weird to become like, go from a scrappy, as you're saying, blue collar, kind of writer to then suddenly like minted? Yeah, I started at 35 for 40,000 a year as a junior copywriter. Uh, and now, yeah, making a lot more than that. Um, but I would say that when I say I made it to the top, I was only CCO of Deutsch for a year, year and a half. I was an executive creator director for four or five years before that, which still pays quite well. So was I in the 1%? I, I suppose by all statistics, I was. Um, when we think of the 1%, I think the 1% contains Warren Buffett and me. Yeah. Right, you know what right, I mean? Right, so right, yeah. A guy making, uh, you know, doing really well, um, but but no, I'm not making 50 billion a year. So it's like, there's a spread that's outrageously huge, but you're all in that 1%. Like, whereas Warren Buffett and Ben Affleck, I'm just using names, these guys are in the one one hundredth of the 1%. The lower end of the 1% is still great, but I wouldn't say there you're independently wealthy. You would need to be in that spot for a number of years. And I had not been. Um, I had been in that that 1% for about a year and a half. But yeah, that's a that's it's crazy. I never thought I would make money. Uh, I never had a, a lot of belief that I could do that. Um, yeah, it is a strange thing to. And I think I was really thankful and grateful for that because I never I didn't come from a family with money. You know, I didn't come from, you know, I, I grew up in a part of town in, in the valley that had gangs just down the street, like famous gangs. I had 
police, and I'm not making this up. We had police spotlights in the window of our house. We'd hear gunfire at night. Um, My mom worked three jobs. She worked at special needs. My dad was a fireman and then he became a contractor. Blue collar on my street was extremely mixed sort of families, all middle-class. They owned auto parts stores to teachers, electricians, just normal people, you know, Italian family, Filipino family, black family, uh, Korean family. These were Irish family to the left of me. That was the world I came from. And nobody I knew had done something like that. Um, nobody in my family had done something like that. So yeah, I didn't ever expect that I would be a white collar guy. I never thought that I would be invited to fly on the private jet of a big corporation. I would want to be sitting there and be like, well, this is crazy. Like, you know, like, you know, you're kind of pinching yourself. So I was grateful because I didn't expect it. That's great. That's really cool. Um, okay, cool. So let's, so then you let's uh, move to the, to the part where things get weird, which is we're all dealing with now. So you're at, <laughs> you've made it to the peak. You've made it to CCO, which is chief creative uh, officer at Deutsch, which is, you know, a great firm and you're changing the face of it. And so then what happens? Yeah. Eight years of success um, where they were so supportive and I'm so thankful for the opportunities they gave me and really couldn't say anything bad. Uh, great environment. Uh, and then I start to notice around, you know, 2019, 2018, that like all corporations and all agencies, there's beginning to be these ideas that are trickling into the agency that I are very foreign to me and my, I guess my generation, you know, one of those is unconscious bias. Uh, It was this idea that you're unconsciously a racist on some level, whether you know it or not. And that idea in itself wouldn't even be that of strange or anything if we just said everybody was that and it's just all of us need to watch it that's kind of how it entered the door but over time you start to realize no no certain groups need to really watch it and other groups there's no accountability um and i'm watching this trickling into this world and i'm going i see the writing on the wall of this where this is heading it feels like this is directed at certain groups um and that was the beginning of it. And I'm seeing lots of other ideas and, you know, you you know, I'm a Christian and my Christian convictions don't put me at odds with corporate America for the most part, almost my whole career. Uh, Because corporate America, I always say that they serve the green party, the dollar. Um, They're not really progressive and they're not really conservative as much as they would say as a kid, they're conservative. They're not, they're what will make us money. And so as a Christian, that's the world system. I can't change that. Uh, I'm not even called to necessarily change it. It's the reality of what makes the world go around. So on some level, there's going to be money and there's going to be people trying to make money. And there's going to be brands participating in that and companies participating in that. So I could go into that business. And for the most part, I wasn't touching politics ever. I wasn't touching God. As a Christian, that's a subject that I would have to be careful about, you know, because it's a convictional thing for me. And I wasn't really touching sex. If we were touching sex... In advertising, it would be in the tawdry Carl's Jr. way, yeah. which I would disagree with as well. I don't think that's good advertising. I think it's bad advertising to just leverage the bodies of women to sell burgers. Um, but that was the only place touch sex really got touched on in advertising. Sometimes men are made into sex objects too, but for the most part, maybe the racier brands like Calvin Klein would do that. I didn't really touch those brands. 
So for the most part, I wasn't touching subject matters that violated my conscience. And every day I could go into work and just say, how can I make people laugh? Um, and to be honest with you, Isaac, if I'm really honest, in the early part of my career, I don't think I was a convictional Christian, which what I mean by that is I'm culturally Christian, just the way a lot of people are culturally anything. Well, my family is Jewish, I'm Jewish, or my family is Catholic, I'm Catholic. So I'm Christian in the sense that, yeah, I believe in some of that stuff. <laughs> right, right. You know, I think people should be treat people good and treat people better than themselves. But I wasn't a convictional Christian. And what I mean by that, or a biblical Christian, is I didn't open up the Bible and take seriously what Christ is saying until a certain point. And then once I did, I started to feel the walls closing. On me. <laughs> because I'm starting to listen to this guy, you know, who's saying to you, you're going to have to make choices. And you're going to have to count the cost if you want to follow me. And I'm going to put you at loggers heads or I'm going to give, I'm going to, I'm going to put you in a position to go upstream against the world. Because if you, you can't serve two masters, if, if it's money, choose it. And if it's, if it's me, choose it, but it won't be both. And all that doesn't make much sense to me then because there's not, they're not in competition too much in America. It's a Judeo Christian country in which the principles of the country seem, the culture is cultural Judeo-Christian, you know. So most of us agree on the rules of the monopoly game and my Christian beliefs don't put me in much conflict with that. All of a sudden in 2018, 2019, moving into 2020, some new ideology is sweeping in and it's not about those things anymore. And in fact, not only do I not want you to run from politics, you must embrace politics. And you must embrace what we tell you are the politics to embrace, which are progressive, radical left politics. They come flooding into the advertising world and they're not up for discussion. There is no pushback. It is we are right, you are wrong. Be quiet if you don't agree at best and try to hide, but we're going to flush you out even out of that position now, which because we're going to say things like silence is complicity, silence is violence. So I'm in this very progressive business where this ideology is obviously incubating on campuses in America. Well, why wouldn't I have known? Why wouldn't we have all known that what was coming out of college was going to come right into corporate America? And the way that this ideology works is you get very weak leadership at the top and you get radical, radical um, agitators at the bottom or even in the middle or on the way to the top. It doesn't matter. And they're radically advocating for change inside. and then. When I say weak leadership, let's just call it human leadership. We are all susceptible to the pressure of that. These people are not willing to talk. They have a point of view on the world and it's critical race theory, it's diversity, equity, inclusion, which is just critical race theory repackaged for corporations. And they are not up for a conversation about it. And all the sophistry is well-constructed and it's pretty airtight for them. And, it, and they are 100% drunk on it. And the hive mind is marching in one direction. And you, as a leader, you have one choice. You need to get on board and to make your decision because we're going to flush you out. You're going to make, you make one mistake. You take one position. You say one thing like Jennifer Say from Levi's, who all she said is, I wonder if we should be masking kids the way we are. I wonder if these quarantines are good for kids. And she's a Levi's CMO. And that was enough to lose Really? She got kicked out for that. Kicked I'm out because they told her, stop talking. Stop having convictions. 
she's not a conservative like me. She's not a Christian. She's a progressive, but on one issue, she strayed from the orthodoxy and it's, you can't be CEO and keep talking. Yeah. So, so that was beginning to happen. So it, it, what's interesting about what you're saying though, is it sounds like you had kind of this personal relationship with God that was growing simultaneously as this other evil force. And were you, before the cancellation actually occurred, were you starting to be more outspoken yourself against these ideas? I was starting to be more outspoken as a Christian. As a Christian. Okay. Yeah. Not necessarily against the things, but just like, no, yeah. I yeah. never talked politics. Yeah. Almost. I almost never revealed my politics. I never thought they were relevant. And I always thought I should observe that same rule that we always have, which is let's not bring politics into this. So I wouldn't bring them up. Did people start to perceive that I was uh, uh, on more conservative? Absolutely. Um, but I never really talked about it. I never made it. Important. I would listen to conversations around me where Christians would be insulted. Yeah. Republicans are insulted constantly. Well, and they're, they're perceiving it because you're refusing to, as you say, add to the, you're refusing to add and your silence. They immediately, then they start thinking, Oh, what's going on. What's going on with that guy. And then they start maybe looking into things you've said. Did that, is that kind of what happened? Yeah. And then eventually maybe in a couple personal conversations, when you get close to people, you yeah. let it slip what you believe because right. you're like, surely I'm allowed to be a Christian. <laughs> it's like, Christian. Yeah, 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 right. Can I not be right? It's insane. It's oh, insane. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, over time, you know, so I wrote a book called collaborate or die and it was how, and it said how being a jerk kills careers ideas and careers and it was all about collaboration in this business and how are you can you can you push your ego down far enough to hear what other people are saying can you really see things from other people's point of view on your idea if you will do that you will have a long career and you'll have a lot of success and in the dedication of that book i dedicated it to christ that was hard for me to do because i knew when i did that it was a declaration of sorts that and even as a christian in our belief system you're a target you're, you're you can't be friends with the world what i mean by that it's not that you're you're against the world it's that if you hold on to what jesus is saying it's going to set you against the world just like it did for him you can't abide by what he's saying and not be in con you know in an antithetical position to the world's ideas and so by putting my name at the front of that his name by the front of the book you're declaring yourself. Absolutely. And, and so that was what I was starting to do more. I would be willing if someone came to me with a huge problem at work and they would alcohol, drugs, missing people in their life that literally go missing. I mean, just whatever those issues were, I might stop and pray with them. That's a risk because you're in a, an environment where I don't know how you're going to take that. But you know, the interesting thing was, is no one ever, ever said no to that. And they always appreciated it. Um, so in the sense that I was becoming more outspoken for Christ, that was happening. But politics, no, I wasn't really interested in pushing politics. I didn't think they were relevant and I didn't think they were helpful. So I didn't bring it up much. Right. It's amazing. This is just so. OK, so then what actually happens? So you're you're kind of poking around and being 
did the po did uh, I actually have collaborator die somewhere around here, but did that come out before the the yeah, that came out? okay, so that came out shortly before. And then so what happens in it was it 2019? When when did the George Floyd happened. Yeah, right. So what happened? So, so George Floyd dies. And I remember every news channel I turned on, it was the same feeling, outrage, whether it was Fox News or CNN. I didn't see much of a difference. And it was outrageous to watch. That was everybody's reaction. And I had no idea the freight train that was coming on the back of that, which was that this death of George Floyd in Minneapolis was going to come storming into an, into my life on the West Coast, 3,000 miles away, and that it would impact my life so much. Because, And what I mean by that is for about a week and a half to two weeks, the intensity of the pressure to take a position, and the position to take was radical left race politics, identity politics, get your BLM square up on your Instagram. And I being, I think, fairly aware of what BLM stood for. And there's these two things happening, this confusion that's happening at the time, but I don't even perceive the confusion. There's a thing that, that's a phrase, Black Lives Matter, a phrase that no one should deny. Of course they matter. Um, and I agree with that, that statement. Then there's an organization that is a Marxist organization. It's led by Patrice Kalurs and two other Marxists it's not me calling a Marxist. Patrice Kalurs says she's a Marxist. She's no longer there. I'm a trained Marxist. I am versed in Marxism. People don't understand what Marxism is. Sure, I want to, Marxists want to find tension in society and exploit it for division. That's the simple definition. I'm going to find anger, resentment, and I'm going to pour gasoline on it. So I know that's who's at the top of this organization. The Black Square represents this organization, not just that phrase, Black Lives Matter, they're Marxists, and one of their statement, statements of belief that's most uh, like appall, appalling to me and destructive is this idea that we, we are devoted to the destruction and disruption of the Western prescribed nuclear family. So I'm a Christian thinking, I think family is the cause of almost every problem. We don't have fathers and mothers that care about their kids enough to correct them, enough to help them. And family units are so important. And I've got this organization saying, we're just, we're dedicating to breaking up the nuclear family. <laughs> and I'm looking at a black community that is devastated, in my opinion, by some of this. And so I'm being asked to put a BLM square on my personal social, which I don't even hardly post. I never post because I don't like social media. People might look at me now and go, Brett posts all the time. Well, I'm, I don't see any reason not to now, but I was not a person that was super public. And I'm getting this intense pressure. Not only should the agency take a position, which they did, they took the position, the, the obligatory uh, BLM post, uh, Black Lives Matter Square that every, every corporation did in America. Um, but you personally need to speak up. And so I'm sitting in meetings and feeling the knives are coming out at me. And I'm thinking, not from everybody, by the way, but there's this intensity being directed at me as a leader to make a statement. And it needs to be the statement that you have, you have to make the statement. We all know what the statements are. You have to go along with everything. You can't question one thing about it. You can't, you can't even raise your hand to say, I'm not sure rioting and burning down businesses is the answer. Um, I'm not sure we should be bailing out criminals and pedophiles through 
funds that are being directed to rioters that are rioting in Minneapolis. Um, any of those questions will be considered apostasy or you're a heretic and could be grounds for deep trouble. And you, it's not like anybody's saying this, but you can feel it. And in fact, one person who is a Marxist that I dealt with, what I won't say who that person is, was crying, telling me how much I needed to make these statements. And the pressure on me was so great that I didn't sleep for like 10 days because I could feel that one wrong word and it didn't matter. So the way they work, the, the way the system works is if you speak, we'll problematize your language. So you better get every word right. It's like Douglas Murray says, there's tripwires laying across the ground everywhere. You hit one, you're going to blow yourself up. If you don't speak, there's a tripwire. And so my choice was, I'm just going to, I think wisdom and prudence suggests that you should be quiet for a second. Let some facts come out. Let's understand the situation a little better. Let's not just take six minutes of film and assume we know everything. Um, let's hear sto the story. Yeah. Let's admit that what we saw on film was terrible. We all agree with that. Nobody disagrees with that, but we don't know everything. So I'm right now, I am not able to fix that situation. We are not, we're an ad agency, not a political machine. And we're, if we were a political machine, nobody agreed that we were a progressive leftist political machine. I'm certainly not. I'm not ready to do all these things. And so I'm going to sit and, and I'm going to observe for a second and try to have wisdom in this. And then we can decide how, how it is. But that wasn't the idea. The idea was go full bore to, to because make it's not you're you're you were offering a rational solution to something that was not rational, emotional. It, well, and not only emotional, spiritual. I mean, you're you're offering, and this is why I think people like you, and not people like you, but just people who offer rational solutions in those moments get trampled because you're expecting the opponent to be rational, and the opponent is not rational. It's it's not a rational opponent. There's no all these things you're saying. It's like they're so well researched and they're so obviously true. And the thing is, the opposing side, the reason we've arrived at Marxism, the reason we've arrived at this utilitarian world where everybody gets a little blank slate of happiness and nobody should interrupt that is supposedly because of rationalism, supposedly rationality. We've outthought the bad racist instincts right. and we've we've banished them. And now we've figured out how to structure a utopian world around rationality. So exactly. people like us, people like me too, are like, oh, well, then I, I certainly, I should offer a rational response to this. Um, I'm being asked to say these certain things. Certainly, I have the ability to respond rationally. And then you realize, you learn the hard way, this is has nothing to do with rationality. It's not a rational discussion. It's a, it's a you know, spiritual, emotional takeover of culture. And- no, and I'll say, Isaac, I love what you just said, because that is my conclusion. Yeah, it, right. Emotion is the wrong word. It was spiritual. I could feel it. Right. Something crazy town went into the head of millions of people. I heard James Lindsay, who wrote this book called Race Marxism. The way I discovered James Lindsay, and he's a really outspoken critic of critical race theory, uh, queer theory, all these different theories that are all Marxist. And this book, Race Marxism, is quite good. But he tweeted, if you're not a node on this thing, you can't, 
it's the only way you can see it. But if you're a node and what he meant, if you're connected to the hive mind of this, you're, you're lost in it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that is such an observation that I relate to because that's what I saw. It was like people's brains went missing. Yeah, yeah. No, well, and that's why the response to it, the solution to it is not rationality, but spirituality. And that that's how we fight this thing more. And you see that more and more. And if not, you know, spirituality can come in writing. It can come in the word. It's just the arguments against it are not well, uh, this is a rational, you know, isn't it rational to think about it this way? It's it's a deeper level of arguing about what it, you know, what good and bad is. God versus not God, you know? And that's mm. why our side eventually will win because it always does, right? The, that side never wins. Ultimately, God does prevail. Uh, but it's just so many good people like you, um, are now realizing that, right? And you learned it kind of the hard way. For me, I was already so deep into this. I mean, like I also got canceled, by the way, from my uh, from my branding agency that I was at for struggling with this same thing. It was, you know, it came out and I, I was like, well, my home is being broken into. You know, I lived downtown at the time. My home is being destroyed repeated times. Certainly I have the right to question if this is the right response or not, right? But no, that was not acceptable at all. You know, I I got in huge trouble. It's, oh, uh, do, do you need to seek counseling? Because like, you seem like you're really upset. You know what I mean? I'm like, literally, they are breaking into houses right next to me. The streets are destroyed. Like, surely, uh, surely for people who care so much about empathy and the your state of mind and, oh, do you need to take a break? Like, do you need a mental health day? Surely, you know, like there right. should be some room if your home is being, you know, if your apartment building is being destroyed repeatedly, you know? Said you're being uh, but gassed. No, you know, like, right, right, no, but oh, no, no, that's, that's your problem. And it was so stunning to say that and have the other people be not care. And that also was kind of, I mean, I had already known it a little bit, but that was when you start realizing, oh, they're picking up cues, like they're picking up cues from me that are unspoken. You know, they're picking up the fact that I am like, not, as you said, opposed in a spiritual sense to where society is headed. And so it doesn't matter what I say, you know, they, they, they're going to, they know that anyway. Anyway, sorry. Uh, no, that, was, that was too much of a, too much of a rant. But no, so, okay, I... so, so the day comes, BLM comes. You're you say this thing where you're like, I'm not ready to get into it. And then how does the hammer drop? So uh, that finally kind of peters out and I could actually sleep one night <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you know, and I and I and I think, well, my, my reputation is a pr protection to me because I get along great with all my employees. It doesn't matter if they're gay, black, straight, white, Jewish, doesn't matter. Catholic. They all enjoy working with me. I enjoy working with them. Um, and they're all treated fairly. I don't, I've never been called into HR one time in my life for any violation, not once ever. So I'm not really worried about me too. Cause I know I have a, I, wh wh where I stand on that. I know how I treat women. I'm not worried about any of this, uh, this race racism kind of obsession suddenly in the culture, because I know how I treat people of color and, and, and all these things. So I, I finally can sleep, even though I feel this crazy pressure during this time that seems directed at me strangely but i could just perceive it and then i get a call hey can you take a look at something uh this is from hr 
here's a link I need you to click on. It. Oh my and it's God. like nine thirty. Like some communism level shit. It's just so terrifying. Like yeah. you saying this like makes me feel such anxiety. Just like that call. Can you take a look at this? It's like, uh, it just gives me like tingles of fear. Just you saying it, it's so it's messed horrible up. because I'm like right when I get called, I'm thinking is was somebody drunk on set? Was somebody you know, who knows what the problem might be. Yeah, yeah. As a CCO, you deal with things, you deal with people. And it's true. I'm not, Deutsch is a great, was a great agency. So I'm not putting, things happen. You got to deal with these things. You got to deal with people things. But some little spidey sense after that week and a half told me or two weeks of intensity that it might be to do with you. But I didn't think so still. I click on this link and it's an Instagram post beneath the black BLM square for the agency. And we had talked about when they were going to put that square up, be careful because it's going to cause a conversation. Well, the conversation leads to a former freelance producer that I, it was five years earlier, um, taking a casting email about voiceover, which none of this is clear because it's pulled out of a nine email thread, taking my comments on a voiceover casting and highlighting certain words like too urban, too AA, without ever explaining that actually the two talents are both black. We're going with a black person one way or the other. And we're only doing, well, not just only doing that. We're doing that partly because, and this is where the conversation starts, because the client wants someone less white. So this conversation is racialized already. I mean, I, I haven't racialized it. The client said they want less white. When, when clients say less white, we know in advertising what that means. You want a black person. And I'm not against that. Fine. Um, if I have any caution on this particular brand, which I'm not going to mention them, but if I had any caution on this particular brand is there were old battles around that brand about um, they want to be cool. We, every brand wants to be cool. We want to be cool. And so they, a lot of times brands are like, oh, I'll get a cool black guy to do the VO because it'll make me cool. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah. If you're Adidas, if you're Nike, if you're certain things, um, yeah, yeah, that could work. And I've done it many times on my own Pepsi, your youth brand. That is a reflection of the culture and the market that you're targeting. Could be great. But in this case, I think it's fake for you guys. Feels what the leftists would call cultural appropriation. What right. I would Which is, is basically the point you were making. Kind of, yes. Right? That, that's what you were saying. It's like this you feels you're, gross. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You think you're black entertainment television? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It feels black. like you're appropriating this thing, which the funny thing is every black person that I know that I'm friends with would all agree with that. They're, they they would all say, yeah, no, I hate when I it's see, fake. you know, like the Home Depot has like the, the thing, you know, like, or, or <laughs> there's a hilarious TikTok video of like, Black comedians on TikTok are so good and they make fun of like ads geared towards them and they're just yeah. like shaking their head. And it's like McDonald's being like, you know, the sassy black McDonald's voice. And that's kind of what you were saying, right? You were you're just being like, this is too urban for this audience, urban you know? Brand. Right, right. Which is like, no one I've talked to about you ever has criticized that those words you were using. Because as a creative director, that is our job to describe those things in every instance. I don't think... There's a single person in advertising that thinks you were being racist. I mean, I don't know anyone who thinks. Well, I the first casting session, ironically, I ever was in was a black producer when I started. And we were looking behind the glass at these little girls trying out for like a Barbie commercial or some kind of Mattel thing. I forget what it was. And this producer was being so brutal on these little girls. And I remember thinking, man, this is mean. 
And then I went, wait, that's her job. She's actually trying to pick a representative for this brand, for Mattel or whoever it was. I think it was Mattel. And it's not mean because they can't hear her and it's her job. And it taught me something really early. We have to talk frankly about the casting and we have to match it up with the brand. That is subjective, but I'm actually paid for my subjective opinion. Right. That's your job. Yeah, exactly. People can disagree with it. And in this case, my words in that email that this 2Urban 2AA for this brand, for this particular job, was just a subjective opinion. This freelance producer who I have no ill will towards, I have no, I never, I got along with them fine. I, I actually remember good feeling good feelings about them, held on to those comments and personalized them without ever telling me and held on it for five years and then deployed the email, put it into the world at the height of the George Floyd racial tension in the country, which then dominoed into, if you ever go through this, you see the reality of the way humans react to that and the pressures that come to bear. And, and when you're a corporation, and like we said earlier, the only thing the corporation exists to do is to make money. That is it. They can talk about mental health, there's an empathy all they want. All that is very secondary to whether we're making a profit because we won't exist for mental health days unless we're making a profit. That kind of PR moment, the first thing they're thinking is how do we get away from this as fast as possible? Um, so I'm on the phone looking at this thing. And the first thing I'm thinking as I'm reading this is one, did I even write it? I don't even know if I wrote it. I really don't, but there's something about it that Remen is Remen is five years ago. So I, there's something about it that seems like it resonates as something maybe I would have written, but I don't know. And I don't want to say I did before I know. I also don't know the context. So I asked for that thread, which is nine other emails. I discovered that the client's asking for someone less white. That's how we got here. There's 10 other conversations that now I remember the job, now I remember the client and it's all coming back now. But this producer, rather than come to me, first of all, you're personalizing comments about two black talents and one that I think is better than the other for the job. And you're taking it personally about you. I can see how that could happen. Why don't we talk about it so that I can at least give you my point of view, like as a person to person, I just have a feeling we would meet somewhere in the middle and maybe I learned something, maybe you, maybe you do too, but it doesn't have to, I mean, you took this and you weaponized it, stuck it on, took a work email, made it public to exact maximum damage against me and the corporation. And I don't even know if it was about me as much because in her email, she says, I had nothing but whatever bad experiences. Now we all know when you're at a corporation, there are bad experiences that every, all kinds of people have. We've been, all been through it. Sometimes we don't like the corporation or we don't like the institution that we're at. So I'm not, whatever, I don't know anything. I don't know what she's speaking about specifically, but you didn't like it. And you have this little missile email that you can deploy during George Floyd when no one's thinking nuance with nuance. No one's talking about, well, what's this person's track record? What pattern is there? Well, if you'd ask for the pattern, there is no pattern. If you'd ask, does he have a track record in HR? There is no track record in HR of this stuff. What what did black people at this agency feel when they're around him? There's no, nobody's interested. So there's just a witch hunt and a mob. And, and then there's this sense that we'll coach you out of it, or I could I could come out of this thing somehow if I'll say the things. And those things, I know what the things are. I'm I have white privilege. So did they give you that opportunity? Did they give you the opportunity to, to say those things? 
the sense was that I should say that too. That organization, Deutsch was very good to me. I really liked the people there. Um, I had a great run there. I, I really mean that. I'm thankful to them for all that they did for me. And I don't believe, um, I just believe that's what happens when pressure happens. And the right. sense was, yeah, the sense was, hey, we really like Brett. We know that's not his character. We know that, you know, but um, so what, We'll, we'll say the right things. I, I, that's how I perceived it. I'm not saying that's exactly what was said, but that was the sense of it. And in that moment, I just blurted out. I just said, I will not bow down to this. I said, I won't. And that just came out. You know, you don't script it. I, somebody asked me like, when, how do I make a stand? I said, I don't think you'll, know, I don't think you'll choose it. See, I think you think you're going to choose the moment you're going to make a stand and you won't. It'll actually happen when you cannot do something. I don't think Jonathan Isaac stands when everybody's kneeling on BLM and the NBA, if you know that player, because he's brave, because he's such a, he couldn't kneel as a Christian to that. And so he's standing there. And that was me. I can't bow down to this ideology. I see what is happening and I know the darkness that's coming behind this. I can feel it. And so I won't bow down. And when you won't bow down, <laughs> you know, in 24 hours, it was over. Wow. Um, and I don't even know what transpired after that. All I know is the next thing was goodbye. And, um, and yeah, I think it was, it was like it hit by a train and, you know, or yeah. a T-bone in an intersection. You, you're kind of like, what just happened? Yeah. Well, especially for somebody like you who'd played it so well, you know, it's like you'd done everything right and you'd, you know, you were already talking about things like the importance of empathy and collaboration. You've written a book on it. You know, it's not like you were out there, you know, you'd really played by the rules. So it's just, as you're saying, your track record was basically perfect. So I could only imagine just the, 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 the sudden realization of getting hit by the reality that this shit had just changed so deeply. It's like crazy. I tell people that like the bottom moment, I think, in all of it was a few days later lying in my bed. <laughs> and you, I don't know if other people have experienced this, but when you're really feeling emotionally heavy, there's a sinking feeling. Like you feel you're sinking into the ground. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, definitely. And I was sinking in the bed and I just, and sometimes, you know, you, we all can even pray sometimes without even calling it a prayer, but I was talking to God. And what I said was, why would you let this happen? It's not only bad for me, but it makes you look bad. I was outspoken for you. And now I'm being called. Now I'm looking at these Google articles and Adweek articles and whatever that say racist emails over my smiling face. <laughs> and I'm going, how did that happen? And I have all these people that will behind the scenes tell me they support me, tell me they don't believe it, but will not vocally say anything because the cost is so immense. One person did, uh, a, a person who happened to be Asian, spoke up in my defense, wrote a beautiful letter on LinkedIn and instantly went viral. But why did it go viral? The mob came for him. Did he get... Canceled. How, how dare you defend 
this white male is gendered patriarchal racist. Um, and he pulled it down and he pulled it down and called me and said, I'm sorry. And it was so beautiful that he wrote this. And I I was so tried. He tried. And I, so to this day, I respect the heck out of him, even if he pulled it down because it took credible bravery to do that. But what he knew was if I leave it up, I'm not going to work. So that's the way this thing works is it's like there's a contagion circle around you and anybody what actually happens is two things one is i got to get distance from you um but then soon even silence is not enough for those people you may have to take a position where you have to pick up a digital stone i call it and stone the person too and that even happened to me later more where people like i'm seen as his friend or an insider buddy he promoted me a lot you know i'm a person of color who worked with him a lot i gotta get distance from brett because and that's just horrible because you're like so that feeling of man like this is what happens when the pressure comes on people yeah you'll get ran over in the street and no one will even help you up and that is a hard thing to accept Mm, totally well what was so so i i'm just thinking about linkedin you know what was so beautiful after this was that you then instead of going and you know writing some big apology and trying to get in at some other agency for half the price you know and and falling on the sword you turned around and started talking about this stuff on LinkedIn outwardly. And, and well, you were really the only person in the mainstream advertising world I've ever seen do that. So that's why I saw your signal kind of a while ago. And immediately when I followed you on LinkedIn, I got a message from one of these, I, I think I told you this, from one of these like operator types, I guess, who asked me to unfollow you the moment I followed you. And I can't remember totally like why that happened, but I found it very just insane that it's like, it's such a mob, you know, and it's all these people one-upping each other to throw stones and to ensure that their worldview is, is the way that it is. Um, so I, I want to talk about that, but I want to just ask you one question because I think people will wonder about this. So you still seem to be of the perspective that at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is money. That these places, if soon as money becomes a problem, they will stop doing woke marketing. They'll stop doing anything because then there won't be time to, there won't be any resources to advance this. Yeah. But if that was true, why, certainly if they were that cold about money, why would they do this stuff in the first place? Why would they engage in ultra left wing ideologies Gillette talking about we hate you know masculinity if we could rely on them to eventually do the right thing because of money why would they engage in those things to begin with because they perceive I now believe very clearly a seismic shift happening the corporations do think wokeness will ultimately lead to money because it's going to be forced upon everybody So they are simply reading the tea leaves and saying, when I fly out to Davos and I go sit at the World Economic Forum, this is being imposed from the top down, the top of Fortune 500 companies, married with governments, with socialism, essentially. And we are are going to mandate it 
Ford, you're not going to like it. You, converting straight to electric cars is going to be hard for you, but you have no You're going to do it. Yeah, you're going to do, do it. it. And, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I think diversity, you're exactly right. Yeah. Diversity, equity, inclusion. It's not going to be um, that ideology. You're going to install bureaucracy within your corporation that sits around and there'll be positions for this and they're not going anywhere. Yeah. So there are people very high up believing they won't have a job unless they kowtow to it. Right. So it's not really money, it's existence. You know, what I mean they're they're basically saying we are going to institute this change upon the world. And, and those, the consumer will have to go along with and it. And the consumer is either going to go with it or they're or we're completely happy to leave them behind. Because the, com the consumers that are going to go against it, these, you know, Trump supporters, more or less, a lot of them are Trump supporters. We don't like them anyway. They, they you know, we don't want them to have any right. power anyway. Yeah. So we're going to go forego money in the short run. We're going to say we're going to risk alienating literally 100 million Americans. That's right. Trump supporters. That's right. We're going to risk alienating 100 million people who spend money because we want to build this new world. We want to build this new public-private partnership for essentially global communism. You know? We want to have right, a table. Right. Table. We yeah. table. Right. And we're not going to get left behind. Yeah, like I don't want to get left behind in the Davos right. crowd, even though I run, you know, like Panera Bread. So I'm going to like go along with this. Yeah, that's right. So, and, yeah, yeah. And, the, and the holding companies and- and Oh, yeah, right. The Black Rocks, the the yeah. financial institutions are wholly bought into this thing called ESG. I think it's environmental social governance, which is essentially housing all of this. You're hearing people are going to hear more and more about ESG, but those ESG standards are just another way to make corporations subservient to elite central planners. Right. Who yep. are going to force businesses to operate a certain way. So you just have holding company heads and you have heads of big agencies just looking going if i want my golden parachute yeah i want my shares yeah, yeah. so the money is still the thing true it true, will true ultimately destroy the efficiency of these corporations i think i've been saying this lately and i really believe this the flood the elites are creating they're creating a flood the flood will take them too they just don't believe that they think they can inoculate themselves and insulate themselves they're building an ark of some kind their money's going to be their yes. ark yeah, their yeah. house in the Hollywood Hills, high up on the hill, will be their ark. Um, my status will be my ark. It will go. It will come for them eventually. It is absolutely waters are rising for them too. It, absolutely, and it's a really actually great. And I should have put this in this series that I'm writing right now about this shift. The point you're making about it's still money. It's just a different pool of money. Like before they wanted money from consumers. We're selling you products, you buy them. This is the money they were worried about. Now the money they want, you're exactly right. It's like ESG money, either from huge places, you know, huge centralized, right. yeah, that, that are so rich they can fund anything or from governments themselves. They're like, right. oh, we're going to be green energy. And then Pelosi and the Dems, they're like, oh, here's a billion. We'll give, here's right. a billion here. Here's a billion here of That's taxpayer right. money. They're more interested in that money That's than right. they are in selling things to people anymore, money. That is a Great really point. good observation. Great point. Well, no, I mean, you're, it's your observation. It's really smart. And I think that they also perceive that the institutional control is firmly in the left's hands. Yeah. So they don't, 
they don't see a way out of it or anything. It's it's sort of fate. You know, it's like it's going to happen. Um, so I think that they look and they say, well, BlackRock has 20 trillion under management. I can't even get a loan if I'm interpublic. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Build out that agency structure in Thailand unless I play ball. Unless I put the ESG, I talked to a guy. So this is an interesting thing. Talk to a guy who's working in a mid-tier company. Pack, he'll eventually be packaging it up to sell it to Wall Street. We talked about ESG. I just talked about it with him a week ago. He said, well, these mid-tier companies don't have to deal with this as much. I said, well, yeah, right now. But he said, but you're right that when we go public, I have to show a path to ESG to get bought. So ESG is going to demand critical race theory. <laughs> so higher based on race and gender. Yeah. perfectly equitable representation. It's going to require uh, carbon offsets. It's going to require Exxon to radically change their business. And probably, in my opinion, just on paper, it won't make any difference. It won't make the world better, but you got to play the ball game. You got to, you got to do the perception game of ESG. So why is this? So I completely agree. And in that sense, there really are becoming a lot more like states than employees, employers, you know, they're, they're not really companies anymore because now they have these values that are about so many things besides selling the product, you know, it's a, and in a way the world of the past was very savage. It was very brutal, you know, industrialization, all these ways in which capitalists dominated the world and, and uh, ruined things and everything like that because the only thing they were responsible for was making profits. Whereas now this thing is shifting and in shifting, they're choosing this ideology to impute into their citizens, which is um, critical race theory, total individualism, we'll pay for your abortion, um, you know, all of these kinds of things. So why do you think that is their ideology? What, what, how come... All these big corporations, even the people at the very top, as you're saying, it's sort of a top dictated Davos dictated thing. Why have they chosen wokeness as their religion of their new states? I think it's just a useful tool. I've come to believe that it's divisive. One reason it's divisive. Yeah. Yeah. A united people is very tough to control for central planners. Divisiveness makes government authority inevitable. If people are warring on the street, if they hate each other, there's only central authority. There's only the government authority that can that can have standing in that situation. Um, I don't believe that these people are woke. I, I've gotten to be more cynical about it. When I think of the Davos elites, the World Economic Forum, the Klaus Schwabies, you know, of the world, I don't even think they're Marxists. I think that Marxism and wokeism, it's all kind of of the same ilk, is simply a tool to take power. I want power. I want to centralize authority. I believe I can do that. The central planner always believed that. They believed it for 100 years since Karl Marx. Yeah. If you were to give the elites, the smart people, the, the PhDs, the academics, control of society, we could make racism go away. We could make, there's this purest version of Marxism. Yeah. We could all be equal. We'll no longer have the rich and the poor and that huge income gap that we all see. Um, and so there's a, a, there, that's a very appealing idea to sell naive people. Yeah. If I were to tell you, I just want power over you. There's no, there's no buy-in on that. But if I tell you I can make racism go away, something that's in the human heart of people, 
that is never going away. We're always going to have to fight racism, you know what I mean, in, in the world, because it exists across all cultures, all time from the beginning. That's the human heart. And we always have to be on guard against it. But I'm going to promise you that I can make it go away. I'm going to make it promise you that there'll be no income gap. I'm going to promise you there won't be people like Elon Musk that have everything and people. Well, that's that's the promise of Marxism. And then what you end up with is a ruling class that's hoarding all the money. All the exactly. Yeah. And and but I Besides can't me you. like everybody else. But I will then be separate. But everyone else is you guys will. I'll solve your problems. But, you know, I'll live in a little bit of a separate world because yeah. i'm controlling it and I, I should be you know yeah i should so, be and i'm right. better and i'm right. better so yeah, i I'm think better. they yeah. look at those yeah. things as tools i don't think they really believe in marxism i think they know they're not stupid you don't have to just like all i have to do is look at the soviet union and see it collapse in 80 years i, I could see the, the takeover of the farmland in the ukraine and 30 yeah. million people starved by stalin i can look at castro how he imprisons people if they disagree and how that that in that beautiful country is just in deterioration for the last 50 60 years since communists took it over venezuela it goes from an oil rich company to a impoverished company uh a country sorry um north korea total poverty eating tree bark i mean there's reports of that no freedom of speech over the border lights car companies you know expression uh that is it k-pop i don't know whatever at night yeah, i can yeah. see what communism brings i'm not an idiot i know that it won't work it's just a tool it's the tool i need to get you to buy into what i want which is power over you right, right. i'm very it's much total power which is keep giving me money yeah right yeah. i don't think that means that that doesn't mean that there aren't purists and true believers that are in our strata and maybe even some in the top that I, there, there could be this utopian world if we would all just collectivize we, we really can't solve global warming in a nation state sort of configuration if china's off belching stuff into the air and the united states is doing a little better or not doing well or argentina is doing whatever it wants that won't solve a global problem like global warming or global starvation whatever those things are there are probably some purists who feel a world government a one world system is the, is the natural answer. Oh, then, absolutely. I think a lot of people feel that way. And I, I think if they were just pose it that way, honestly, <laughs> I think it's a I think it's a decision, a discussion worth having. Right. You know, would we be better off with the one world government? I actually don't think that that's necessarily a bad argument. If right. they were to say, oh, well, here's how it would work. Here's how you know, we would make sure that it wouldn't become too much power at the top. And, you know, I mean, America was a was a constructed ideological enlightenment era project. Right. If we want to have another project with world government, I, you know, hey, I don't agree with it, but at least I would you'd be able to be like, all right, well, you can hold it accountable. The problem is that this is a shadow group. And, and this is a group of people that are controlling both states and corporations that you're saying from the very top. And you can't see them. There's no one that you can hold accountable and you can't say, oh, well, okay, you have this great plan, but what about this? You know, right. you have this great plan for a single world thing. Well, what about this thing? You're not able to do that because they're 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 thinking, well, if we reveal it, right? If we reveal we that this it. is, then with the, nobody's gonna, everybody's gonna be like, oh, I don't want this. So, you know, I think that that's a little bit of the issue. That's right. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think, and I think they feel they know better in their hubris. We are the ones that will 
you know, as Klaus Schwab said, build the future. Yeah. And I think they also think they have technological tools they never had. I think they think they have algorithms and AI and ways that someone like a Karl Marx, a Stalin did not have. I can't see a transaction out in the furthest reaches of the oh, uh, yeah. Union, but I have visibility into every transaction on Amazon. I can't incentivize your behavior via an algorithm, uh, via punitive measures on social media, censoring you. I now have that. You I now have, yeah, you now, sorry, go ahead. No, you're so right. I mean, yeah. but, no, what you're saying, I think we're both agreeing is that I now have all the incentivizing tools I need to control your behavior and to lock you out of a system that I'm devising via passports, digital passports, vaccination, that could be a way, cryptocurrency, programmable currency, whatever, um, or just censorship on social media. Just I have the ability to limit your participation in society. Right. I, I, and I, yeah, yeah, yeah. The great goal of the central planner was I want control. Yeah. If I had control, I could bring heaven down to earth. Yeah. And at least the people that deserve to have wealth and property, the smart people would have it. And then they'll they'll be poor people. They always will be. <laughs> but we'll decide that. And and we'll also be doing a, a you know a solid for the planet Earth. And and in my mind, I'm messianic in a way. I think I wake up and I feel good about all these things because it it's painful, but it's necessary. Right. And and the the poor people will have access to free abortions and free uh birth control. So right. that they'll be happy, <laughs> right? And it's like, but no, but actually it's so they could never replicate enough to take power from you, you know? And and so right. that's that's the issue with this with this ideology. And I think um yeah, no, it's it's really uh in a way, I feel that it's not even a I said a shadow group earlier, which of course sounds very conspiratorial. It's almost like a what can go wrong will go wrong thing. It's like when you can control the world via the internet, somebody yeah. is going to try to. Somebody is going to try to do it. And I I think that this group is right that they now do have the tools. The internet is the tool to control the world with one entity. Right. So somebody's going to try and do it. And they've decided it's going to be that, more or less. There's an interesting book I was, <clears throat> I just was reading. This guy, C.J. Hopkins, and it's uh, the rise of the new normal Reich. It's really wow, good. Um, well, he wrote all these essays in the middle of the pandemic. Mm. And what's really interesting, it really opened my eyes. And it's, you write a lot about this too, and, and sort of have gone where he's gone probably intuitively. Marxism is a distraction. He calls it global cap, global cap. He calls them global cap is global capitalism. Yeah. And I actually think he's more accurate because we're not seeing Exxon go away or Chevron go away or BlackRock go away. Global capitalism, like capitalism ultimately, and I'm a capitalist, but it, like any system, it has its excesses. And you, you'd find this very odd for me to be criticizing it. But, but just what you said, this is, that's what he argues in this, these essays is it's the natural arrival point that you get to when money is your God. And when institutions get so powerful, they, they, so, and I think of capitalism as it's a shapeshifter. All capitalism is doing is what it's great at doing. Oh, socialism. Oh, we're, we're for that because that's what we see coming. So we'll, we'll, we'll embrace that thinking that we can leverage it to, to make money. So I think it's interesting because it is Marxist principles, but it's, but China kind of did it right. China kind of said we're, the CCP, the Communist uh, 
the Chinese Communist Party said that we want communism, we want a ruling class in a, in a, you know, over the whole uh, uh, of China, and the, but we also understand that capitalism does things better than the government. And so we'll open up our markets to allow business, but we'll make the business subservient to us. And I just think that Chinese model, I think it's just Western elites are looking at the Chinese model and going, that's what we want. We want social credit scores. We want to be able to control. We want to be able to say when a business has done something we don't like, and we want an obedient, subservient population. And we have the tools to do that because China's proving that. They got a billion people. They know every one of them. They socially score every one of them. So yeah. the model's there. I think they right, just the see model's there. Yeah. 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 Private, private, public partnership of control over average people. Yeah, in in the whole world. Um, okay, well, wow, that was really, really great. Let's uh, wrap up here by talking about what you're doing now. So, um, yeah, tell us. I, I know you're you're. Um, yeah, why don't you just after what happened? What what's the new what's the new move? Yeah, I mean, I'm I am trying to figure that out because I think like um, the corporate world, unfortunately, after everything we just talked about. There's two pieces to it for me. One is many wouldn't have me because I, without me doing the mea culpa that makes, you know, Chris Harrison's from The Bachelor or Glenn Cole's from 72 Sunny look like, you know, child's play. I'd have to write something. <laughs> yeah. The most Maoist, obedient little yeah. citizen. Self-flagellate um, in public. You'd have to I'd have to self-abate yeah. until I was bleeding. <laughs> so they wouldn't have me and I won't do that. And then there's also my part of it, which is I'm not going to get on board with this. What I said that day, I meant I'm not bowing down. I just see this ending somewhere very dark. And I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but if I have a conviction like that, it sounds like you share some of those convictions. Absolutely. We're all trying to wrap our heads and hands around this. It's not easy, but we know this is when people get power, too much power. We know where this ends somewhere very dark. And so I feel like I have to fight against it. I certainly can't be a party to it. So I can't go back to the corporate world. And then the political world is interesting. I wrote for uh, a network called The First, what wrote monologues for a, a, a woman called Dana Lash, who's a former NRA spokesman. Um, loved working for her, loved doing these monologues. And so every day I had to write an essay, kind of like you write, I write. It's not easy to write these essays. I would write a 2,000, uh, maybe even more, three or 4,000 word essay for five hours a day, checking the internet, thousand sources. What is CNN saying? What is Fox saying? I don't want to make her look bad. Um, and I did that every day for five months and it was exhausting and just an interesting thing to do. And I did that. Then I got a chance to work at the Daily Wire and I went there and the and was there for about six to seven months. And the main thing they wanted was something a little different. Hey, let me take, let's take your Madison Avenue experience and help a conservative brand, which I think a lot of times conservative brands don't have those people because we know they're all progressive. Right. Help us to sort of up the game of the communications, the branding. And so I went there after sort of writing monologues for Dana Lash to setting up an in-house brand team and hired a number of people that were very good talents that worked on big time brands like Apple. And, and that team totally was established. Uh, and I'm very like super proud of the work that we did. Uh, and I, I did that. So I, and now I'm kind of left daily wire after setting that up and it's functioning and trying to figure out what is next. And I think 
Isaac, the question you're asking is really interesting because the hard thing right now for me is that you have a whole career built on a certain system that no longer is feasible for you from either a convictional conscience standpoint or from they won't they won't invite me in. Yet that is what you've built your whole career on. And then you kind of walk towards an ideological career. Oh, wait, these are all my people over here. And you discover that politics is also, I mean, that's the one thing I would tell people that have been down this road if they're trying to think, because I get people to call me, go, I want to do what you did. I want to get out of advertising and go over to politics on the right. And the, the reality of that is, is that it's a grind in some ways too. Right. People are people there too. And it's like you said, we said earlier, you touched on something and you said it before I did, and I should have said it before you, but you said it, which is that it's a spiritual thing. And so there's this famous quote by Andrew Breitbart. He said, politics are downstream from culture. Yeah, right? great quote, yeah. Great quote. Well, yeah. the, the culture, in my opinion, is downstream from the spiritual. Oh, definitely. Oh, for sure, yeah. So Daily Wire, for instance, or The Blaze or Fox News is at the cultural point. Yes. I'm going to intersect this argument in the culture which is a pugilistic back and forth on LinkedIn, yes. every social media, where we argue, argue, argue. But like you said, I'm arguing with somebody who on a spiritual level is so fundamentally in a certain place that there is no penetration. And even in, you know, not to get too um, preachy, but even in the New Testament, there's a section where Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and he gets frustrated at one point. I, I think this is interesting in his humanity. He says, why can't you hear me? I'm, I'm right in front of you and I'm telling you what the truth is, but you can't hear it. And it says, because you're blinded spiritually. That's his conclusion. I can't get through to you. And you nailed it earlier. You said that I can't get through. So now I'm like thinking about in terms of what's next. Do I want to fight in the corporate area where there is no fight it's gone <laughs> flag has gone up the white flag and it's 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 a progressive sort of socialist mentality woke whatever you want to call it or the the cultural place where it is a back and forth that never ends <clears throat> right never ending back and forth of just like rational argument rational argument and then it's like does it ever get anywhere does it ever get anywhere yeah, yeah, yeah. is the spiritual place the place to <clears throat> talk to people like, I wonder, and I don't know what that looks like. How do, how do we get to, like you said, the deeper things that are inside of the things that, because I do think one thing I would say is the far left person is, is, is often upset about some of the same things the person on the far right is upset about. They don't like injustice. They don't like that things are unfair, right? Like we don't like racism. We don't like, uh, intolerance we, there's a lot of things that we all don't like about people and humanity and culture <laughs> inequity we hate looking at the disparities and poverty yeah and so they're expressing something that's real and then now we're just talking about so we actually agree on those right things. you're actually agreeing in some ways yeah right, right. yeah but the, but the answer spiritually takes discernment to those problems they're complicated right. they're not super quick fixes the world is messy a superimposed ideology on business over everything that's just check a box put the dei into your company and all racism goes away and all gender bias goes away is is just installing a new quick fix that isn't going to fix it 
and in, and in fact might be creating radical people, people that are becoming radicalized because they feel cornered or they feel yeah. like there's no hope. So then I'm thinking like, is there some spiritual application, some purpose in this journey that leads somewhere like you said, and I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe is the answer around somehow growing the... <clears throat> Because it's a problem with hegemony, with hegemony, however you say that word. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, I think that's, as you're saying, it's like you have the the people bubbling up from the bottom and you have the power coming down from the top. And it's all in this one sphere that you were immersed so deeply in. Is it about, and this is a very common thing to say, but I do kind of think that this is the direction to spiritually fight. Is it about creating alternative institutions? You know, is it about creating institutions where people can be themselves and are not, I mean, that because that's kind of the freedom that we still have. Like in, in Stalinist USSR or in USSR at all, you don't have the option to create yeah. a competing institution. True. Whereas here we have the option to create an institution that is a restaurant, even on the restaurant level or an agency or uh, uh, anything that is a, it doesn't even necessarily have to be right wing culture wars, but is just that spiritually free from this right. horrible evil thing, you know, like, and that's what I'm, focusing on i think myself is trying to like build institutional groups or communities or places where people can come and just feel spiritually free from this oppressive world yeah i like that i think that what other choice do we have right yeah you know what i mean and i think like that is certainly the ethos of daily wire right that, yeah well we want to at least allow people to be entertained without that. People would say they have an agenda, but in their entertainment offerings, they don't. Yeah. They're just like, how do I entertain your kids? How do I make a movie that you might enjoy? Um, and that is their theory is that we're having to create this so that we can ultimately come back together because by creating an incentive structure that pulls people towards a new model where politics are not the center of everything, not even right wing politics, the, the the consumer, the person might drive a change. Um, there's, a, there's a company called Strive Funds by Vivek Ramaswamy. He just rung the bell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And Vivek's pitch, you know, um, is excellence. That's America. And so we're going to create a Vanguard 500 or a, a cluster of Fortune 500 companies that are about excellence and meritocracy yeah. and let the pension funds of various um, you decide. Yeah. You decide. <laughs> right. And they by decide. doing that, you create yeah. a new bulwark inside of the marketplace to drive change. So yeah. I think you're right that like, what did the left do to get here? They they invaded institutions, they created, they infiltrated everything, starting with the academics, and then they moved into corporations and everything else. And maybe you, you have a good point that how do you get them? How do you get it back? Well, you have to create institutional power on the other side. And you do that brick by brick by a right. thousand million and, people doing that. Right. And it's America that is letting us do that. It's like the dream, the old dream of America is still like, you know, barely, it's like a lot, you know, like it's like still alive. 
you know, that system that they set up is still alive enough yes. even after all the bullshit, you know, legal decisions and things that are trying to destroy it. It's still alive enough that excellence can still compete. You know, and that's I love what you just said about Vivek Ramaswamy. I think I haven't even heard that, but I think that that's exactly the way to to fight it is to build institutions where, hey, we're going to do your marketing, except we're going to do it far better. And for one tenth of the price, because you know why? Because we're not concerned with paying a bunch of DEI people to to forward the globalist agenda. Like, at least I don't think the globalists have totally figured out how to destroy that yet. I mean, at least I don't see it. And so, you know, America might end up just saving us in the end. And we'll we'll look back on this time as like, wow, you know, that was close. That sucked. You know, like kind of like McCarthyism, right? I mean, it was like, mm-hmm. you know, the re- reverse McCarthyism where all the rules got all panic created this scary moment, but maybe we can actually get through it if we just return to the principles of Americanism, which is allow people to build their own shit and the best thing is going to come to the top. I love that. And I think one other thing I would add to that, and I love that, uh, is um, I don't know if it was Schultz and Eatson who said it, but he he said, if the lie is going to come out in the world, don't let it come through me. Like everybody has to at some level that believes in freedom and liberty and free cognitive liberty, um, who is against cancel culture, against lack of critical thinking on their own way, in their own time, I think has to put their foot down somewhere. And I don't know how, how that is. And I wouldn't presume to speak for anybody or how, their situation. They got family to feed. They, but in your own way, somewhere along the way, if you love this country, if you love, if you love freedom, then you're go- it's going to cost you something. And you're going to have to make a decision of where that point comes. It might be in a mandate over a universal elixir you're supposed to put in your body. It might come over a DEI program that is causing you as a boss to judge someone on their color or gender or or their sexual orientation. And you see it as wrong. Your conscience is violated by it and you have to say something. I don't know where that comes for people, but I think that if we don't do that, if people, then we get what we basically are manifesting, which is it's better for me in the short term to go along with this and save myself, believing that the flood will never get to me. But I just think that this cancel culture ring, this intolerance ring, the, the hegemonic thing you're talking about, ideology, it's just going like this. And I, what I saw was happening to Brett Weinstein on Evergreen campus or Jordan Peterson eventually got to me and i don't think anybody escapes in the end yeah you're absolutely right the rising tide will will get everyone and that's why a relationship with god is so important because a relationship with god is irrational and it's allowing you to do something that is against fear against perhaps your immediate best interest because the rising tide you're thinking oh well i don't want to drown why would i drown i'm i'm an animal i want to be here Whereas what God allows you to do is listen to that part in you that is not rational, that is not just trying to save himself from the flood at any time. And I think that that's why they hate God, right? They hate religion, more or less. They hate Christians. As you said, you're one of, you know, three outwardly spoken Christians or work top creative directors in the country. And that's because they select for that. They don't want, you know, it, it, it's weird to talk about God. 
And they set that, that that's new. That's brand new. You know, you look at these guys, you look at the, the founders, the smartest guys in the world, some of the smartest guys who've ever lived. They're referencing God left and right. They're constantly talking about God. Oh, I, I prayed to God, I prayed to God. Whereas now I prayed to God, I was like, whoa, bro, that's weird. And so I think bringing back, I think what's so amazing about what you were doing is you were do, bringing that into a day-to-day -day basis and people who are struggling with things. Oh, you're having trouble with self-control. You're having trouble with these things. Or these things. Try praying. Mm -hmm. It was such a radical thing. You were bringing to the inside of the agency world, which is like, the opposite of try praying, you know, that's try this SSRI, that's try, yeah. you know, this drug yeah. that's gonna help you, which you've actually blogged about. Uh, there's a great piece I want everybody to see. There's a piece on your Substack about drug experiences and how like AdAge is now publishing these articles about try pitching while microdosing, which is again, it's like bringing in this chemical solution to this spiritual Good. problem. And I think what's so radical and so amazing and probably why you got targeted was because you were bringing God into this very godless environment. Yeah, I think, I think that is fair. And I think um, I didn't know how those trains were going to collide. <laughs> right. I will say as a Christian, I now know why Jesus says to people, he stops them and goes, have you, have you counted the cost? You say you want to follow. Have you thought about what it will cost you? Because if you're going to really do it, it's going to cost you, in, my, in his case, your life. And he kind of then says the same thing to all of us. Would you, would you give up your life to save it? That is a very counterintuitive thing. Um, and you're right. It drives you to do things that are counterintuitive not practical for your family, not practical <laughs> for your future. And you're right. It's so funny you're saying this because my wife is looking at me half the time. Like, Can you stop with all these convictions because it's making life hard. And it's like, and I hear her, but I don't think you can change it. You know, you can't, you would, you would lose all integrity if you went back. And I don't want to do that. And that cost is worth it to me. Um, absolutely what what else is the other point of being alive otherwise you're an animal you know otherwise it's like you're maximizing maximizing pleasure minimizing pain at, at every moment you know that's that's an animal and human beings are not animals everything that's good about being alive is is not just that um anyway okay well that was great we went an hour longer than normal but uh let's wrap up with just tell us where we can find you and um yeah tell us where we can find you yeah, I mean, I, I do a podcast called the Adwoke Podcast. I do that just for fun. And um, so that's on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I think it's on, I'm on Substack. Brett, I think it's, what is it, Brett? I don't even know. You, yeah, what does it even <laughs> say? I don't know. It's something like uh, Brett.Craig at Substack. You'll find me if you just put Brett Craig and Substack in a Google search engine or wherever. But um yeah, so I write about these things and I, I continue to write about them because I feel like there are enough people out there that um, need encouragement, need to know that they're not crazy in what they're seeing that, and that um, and maybe to reason with people that are even open-minded that maybe this is, system's got some excesses in it that are actually super pernicious and nasty. So yeah, those are the two places you can find me and I'll probably continue to do some things in that and uh it's part one part catharsis, but one part a chance for me to 
at least offer a counterpoint to the one that, like you said, a hegemonic ideology that's overlaying the entire country all at once. Yeah. I mean, one thing I love that you say in your, in your podcast is you're not crazy. You know, it's not you, you're not crazy. It's, and I think that that's a great message that more and more people just absolutely need to hear. Yeah, because I think we're, you can be talked out of your convictions and you can be talked out of your conscience. And then, like you said, where does that leave you? You're going to regret that later. You're going to feel like you were, there were things you should have said or done, and you're going to really not like yourself for that. And what a shame. You know what I mean? If if you feel a conscience, a conviction, I don't know. I just, you're not crazy for feeling that. That was put in you, I think, by the creator and he gave you a conscience for a reason. And when it's accusing you of something, listen to it. Because there's, I know that the pop psychology will say shame is bad, shame is bad. Well, sometimes shame is trying to tell you something. Like maybe <laughs> you shouldn't eat 14 gallons of ice cream. I mean, like, but whatever that is, like sometimes it's a little needle in your chest just saying, hey, pay attention to that. Like, you know what I mean? Not because I don't like you, but because I actually care that you, about you. Uh, a good leader will do that with his employees. Your conscience has a good effect on you in some way, as long as you don't over marinate in your mistakes, but a little bit of, Hey, you should speak up about that. It would be good if you spoke up. There's a lot of people that are not in your position that can't speak right now. Maybe you ought to say something. Um, that's a hard decision to make, but I think you should listen to it. All right. It's an individual call to action. Um, Okay, Brett, thank you so much. This was so great. I uh, really appreciate you coming on. Such a great conversation. And, you know, from somebody who's really experienced this to such a deep degree. So thank you uh, for coming on and super excited to follow you and see all the stuff that's uh, forthcoming. Yeah, no, thank you. It's been great to meet you and Isaac and to follow your writing too. I've enjoyed it and and uh, I look forward to having you. We'll do this again. Okay. okay. It, was a, it was a great conversation. Thank you for doing this. Thanks. For sure. Have a good one.